Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Point Church in Atlantic, Iowa. My name is Don McLean. I'm the senior pastor here at Grace Point. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can check us out at gracepointatlantic.com. And in the meantime, grab your Bible and check out this week's sermon. Well, good morning. We're glad you're here today. I hope you had all, all had a great Thanksgiving uh, celebration some way or another. Got to, got to give thanks to the Lord together, even as we sang about this morning. I want to welcome any uh, family and friends who are visiting with us today. We're glad you're, you're here, uh, maybe capping out a, a, a holiday weekend. I suppose that's what some are doing, but we're just glad you're here. Um, as uh, we prayed earlier, we're actually going to shift gears, and although not this morning, but next week we, we start shifting into Advent and thinking about Christmas. Have you ever wished that you could have the whole plane to yourself. The whole plane. You could sit wherever you wanted, put your bag wherever you wanted. When the refreshment cart came around, you could have coffee and juice, right? They wouldn't make you pick just one. Well, that's what a guy named uh, Phil Stringer, that happened to him uh, several months ago. It was back in June. Phil Stringer got to be the only man on the plane. Uh, he was flying from Oklahoma City to Charlotte, North Carolina, and then he was, it was an early morning flight, you know, kind of one of those leave at 6 a.m. sort of things. Uh, but the flight was delayed, and delayed again and again, and again. it actually kept being delayed as the, as the day went on. Uh, the longer the delay went on, more and more people began to peel off. They began to find other flights they could take, other connections. Some people just gave up and left, but Phil stuck with it. And finally, close to midnight, the airline finally authorized the flight to go. I don't know what the problem was, storms or whatever it was, but finally the flight took off uh, after almost 18 hours of delays, and Phil was the only passenger. He had like a crew of 10, but he was the only passenger on the plane. Uh, we know all this because I guess he's one of those influencer types. Uh, he, uh, he, he streamed the whole thing on TikTok. He kept putting up reports on his delay on TikTok. And, and so anybody who cared to follow Phil got to see what it was like to be the only person on the plane. And I guess it was good for him. It was a good thing for Phil. He didn't complain too much about it anyway. But the truth is, most of the time, it doesn't work out that way. Most of the time, you know, it might be fun to be the only person on the plane. But when it comes to most things in life, people are actually better together. We're better together. That is definitely true with what we're going to talk about here at the end of Hebrews. It's definitely true when it comes to following Jesus Christ. Uh, we are going to finish Hebrews this morning, as I said, and, and as we finish up, I, we're going to talk about this reality, it's, and, it, and I think it's the reality that it, it's, it's permeated a lot of the book, and it all comes together here at the end. We follow Jesus better together than we follow him apart. Uh, last week, uh, I told you that the last chapter in Hebrews, so we've come now to chapter 13 last week, I told you that the last chapter focuses on practical implications, a lot of the practical implications of the Christian faith, and so a lot of Hebrews is doctrine, right? It's a very doctrine-rich, doctrine-heavy letter, but now as you get to the end of the book, the author is kind of wrapping it all up, and he focuses on, I, I used the word ethical last week, chapter 13 focuses on ep- ethical implications of the gospel, the doctrine that we've been looking at in this book. And the first six verses, so last week's passage, focused more on the personal ethics, the personal ethics of the Christian life. And so we talked about some some more individual issues last week. Now the focus shifts to the corporate ethics. So these are things that, uh, and again, we pay attention to as individuals, but the, the, the issues we address now in the last chunk of the letter are things that the church needs to get right. 
They're things that the church, we together, need to focus on. And otherwise, these passages, you read through this whole section, um, and, and it feels like they're disconnected, but, but the thing that ties these, ish, these verses, seven all the way through to the end, ties them together is the fact that they are things the church needs to pay attention to. And I also think it connects to endurance. We've talked a lot about endurance uh, over and over again, actually, in this letter. The Lord uh, is, is, exhorts us in this letter to press on in our faith in Jesus. And again, this part, this part works really well with that because endurance is better done together, right? We are supposed to help each other. And I think that's why the letter is going to end with these issues. We are not supposed to endure in Jesus alone. We're supposed to endure together. And so we're going to look at, uh, I asked Emmett to only read the first half of our passage this morning, but I actually do want to cover verses 7 through uh, 25. Uh, that means there's a lot of material here, and I'll be honest, we could have probably broken it into two or even three different sermons uh, here in this last section that we're doing together, that we're doing today. Um, my, my reason for doing it all together is, is somewhat practical. I, I wanted to finish Hebrews before Advent. And I didn't want it hanging and into the new year. So I just wanted to finish Hebrews this year and before we got into Advent, which means we're, I'm going to probably leave some questions unanswered. Uh, we're going to do, this is one of those sermons where we do more of the 30,000 foot kind of version of the passage. So we're looking at big principles that govern these, oh gosh, it's almost 20 verses that we have before us this morning. So, so here's how we're going to tackle it. We're going to you know, talk about doing you know, better together than we are apart. And there's three particular uh, aspects of church life that, that the author is going to address for us here. And so that's our main outline. If you like to follow along in the paper outline in the bulletin, you kind of get a sense of where we're headed with this. But there are three aspects of church life the church needs to get right if we're going to help each other uh, press on in Jesus Christ. So that's what we're looking at this morning. So the first one, let's, let's look at the first one together. Number one, the first thing we need to get right is leadership. The church of Jesus Christ, if we're going to follow Jesus together and help each other do that, the church needs to get leadership right. And we see this in, in three different parts of this morning's text, three different sections that I want to show us, where there are three leadership principles, right? So there are three leadership principles the church needs to get right. And they're not the only ones. There's lots in the New Testament and the Old about leadership. But, but there's three things God wants to say to us in this passage. So three principles here about leadership. The first principle is found in verses 7 and 8, so we'll start there. And what these verses tell us to do is to imitate good leaders. All right, so you've got to get this right in the church. We've got to get this right. We need to imitate good leaders. Uh, let me read those two verses again so they're fresh in our minds. Remember your leaders, he says, those who spoke to you the word of God. Uh, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So we'll start with that word remember. If you were here last week, you might remember that we looked at the word remember. It was in verse 3. So if you have your Bible open, you look back, you see verse 3 has remember. Remember those who are in prison, it told us. And I told you last week that that word remember in Greek means to, to think about someone, so it is mental, but with a purpose. And so there's, it's, there's just a, a particular nuance of that Greek word. It means to think about somebody so that you help them in some way. The thief on the cross used this word. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Help me. Do something for me by welcoming me into your kingdom. So that word means to help somebody. In English, 
we look at verse 7 and we go, oh, it must be the same word. But it's not. It's, a, it's, it's yes in English, it's the word remember again, but in Greek, it's a different word. It's related, right? So they're in the same family of words that mean memory, but it's a different, uh, it's a different word. And this one is more what you think of, right? So this is going to be the more usual word, the more common word for remember, which simply means to, to think of, right? So it's, this one isn't, this, the, the, the one we looked at last week implied action that follows the remembering. This one just means to think about somebody, right? So, so think about somebody, he says. Who are we supposed to think about? Verse 7 your leaders. So he says, remember your leaders. So this idea of he's saying, look at them, remember those. And it's specifically, so we know we're not talking about political leaders uh, or, or even administrative leaders. It's, it's remember those who taught you God's word, he says, right? That's the next part of verse seven. So remember those who taught you God's word. And the other th- interesting thing about this verse is that he actually uses a past tense, those who taught you God's word, and so we're actually being invited to, to look back, right? Look back over your life. You know, if you've walked with Jesus for 50 years, think back. Think back of the people who have taught you God's word along the way. Right? So remember them. Bring them to mind, we're told to do. And then we're told why. It's so we can imitate them, right? So that, and that's what the verse, rest of the verse says. Uh, look at the way they followed Jesus and then you know, consider the outcome of their life and imitate their faith. Right, so that's what we're, we're told there. So what's the principle here? What's the leadership principle? Well, the leadership principle is that the church needs to have leaders who are good examples. Right? And, and I think the modern church, you know, probably all the church needs to hear these things, but I think it's an important one for the modern church where we get so distracted sometimes. You know, the, it, it doesn't matter when you're thinking about the leaders. And, and I was cognizant, you know, like I say, some of you are visiting today. You know, many of you will go back to a different church. You know, when you think about or college students, you, know, you go and you have to find a, college, a new church, or you move and you have to find a new church. Uh, it's tempting to look at the, the, the leader's skills or the leader's talents or how successful the leader is. And that's all well and good. Those things are useful. But what the scripture tells us is if, if those leaders aren't good examples of what it looks like to follow Jesus, they're not worth following, right? They're not worth imitating. Don't bother imitating someone who's not living a life that's worthy of imitating. And so that's, that's the first principle that's given there. And then that reference to Jesus, it, it's, it's an anchor, right? You want someone who's, who's teaching you God's word in a way that's anchored to Jesus, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's, that's I think, what, what verse 8 is going to do there for us. So principle number one is imitate good leaders. Imitate good leaders. Um, that brings us to the second principle. These three are kind of like uh, pearls on a chain here. Uh, the, the second principle is to follow good leaders. Right? So bring them to mind and then follow them as well. Imitate them and then follow them. And, and we see this principle down in verse 17. So the author is going to talk about some other things uh, in verses 9 through 16, and we'll come back to those in a few minutes. But then he goes back to leadership when he gets to verse 17. So let me read 17. Uh, he, He comes back to it. He says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. It would be no use to you if there were a bunch of whiners. Uh, It would be of no advantage to you, he says. So there's a command here. It's a dual command. Obey your leaders and submit to them. And those are are commands. I, I would 
be disingenuous to soften them, right? We are told to submit to those who are in authority over us in the church. We're told to submit to our leaders and obey our leaders. Uh, it's not an optional thing. Modern church, sometimes we, we think, you know, it's like a sunroof on a, new, on a new truck. You know, I need it or I don't need it. You know, obedience to our leaders is, is not, it's there in the text. Uh, God tells us to do this. However, there's some really important qualifications here that I think anyone who aspires to leadership or is in leadership needs to hear. There's some, and, and actually, the church needs to pay attention to some very important qualifications. Because what he's saying is don't obey and submit to just any leader. Lots of churches get in lots of trouble because they think that's what this means. You know, well, he's, yeah, he's, he, he does this or she does that, but, well, he says to obey. No, you don't submit to just any leader. You submit to good leaders. We follow good leaders. That's, that's what the message is here. And, and he tells us several things about what makes for good leaders. Right? Several things here. We've got to get right in the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, for one thing, good leaders keep watch over people's souls. Right? He, he talks about there. Do you see where he says that? They keep watch over. Why, would you, why should you obey leaders and submit to them? They are keeping watch over your souls. So they're shepherds, not wolves. They're shepherds, not wolves. And, and if you want to know what, what's the key to the shepherding, it's not in verse 17, but it was in verse 7. The key to the shepherding is the word of God. Right? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. That's how we are shepherded. We're shepherded from the word. That's what makes it biblical shepherding and not just you know, the president of the Kiwanis Club or some other social uh, you know, community organization, great organization, but, but not the church, you see. Right? That's what makes shepherding shepherding. So they're shepherds, not wolves. They're servants. Right? Biblical leaders are servants, not masters. So where do, you, where do you get that idea from? Well, I get that from Jesus. I don't know that it's necessarily here in verse 17, but Jesus told us. You don't want to know what, if you want to know what Jesus' uh, vision for leadership in the church is like, just read Mark. Mark chapter 10, verse, uh, verse 45. I'm actually going to read it, uh, although I'll go back to verse 42. Uh, you could turn there or not, but I'll, I'll just read it to you. So Mark chapter 10 is, is one of those places where the disciples have one of their little offline arguments about which of them is the best. And, uh, and James and John have just asked Jesus for, for the prime spots in his kingdom. And the other disciples hear about this, and they start arguing with each other. And so you have this argument among the 12 of them about who's, who should have the best spots in the cabinet of Jesus when he takes over. And, uh, and Jesus, Jesus comes along, and he's like, no, 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 <laughs> you guys got this all wrong. So here's verse 42. Uh, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles... Do you mind if I just use the word we use today? Leaders, right? You know that those who are considered leaders of the Gentiles lord it over the people they lead. And their great ones exercise authority of them, over them. But it shall not be so among you, Jesus says. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And then he points to himself. For even the Son of Man came not to be served... If anyone ever deserved to be served, it was him. But even he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom uh, for many. That's, that's Jesus' vision for leadership in the church. That's what it looks like to, to keep watch over people's souls. There's more, though. Good leaders also know that they will give an account to God for the people who are under their care. So there's a, a real sobriety about uh, the, the kinds of leaders we should be following. 
right? I mean, if you know you're going to give an accounting to God for, for the, the people or the organization even under your care, you, you're, you're a fool if you don't take that seriously, right? So, so there's a seriousness that comes with it. They know that they're going to give an accounting to God for the people under their care. And then there's also an attitude he flags for us here. Uh, good leaders, he, say, do this with, with, he says, do this with joy and not with groaning, Right? Not all whiny and complaining, he says. I like how uh, Peter says it in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2. Uh, there we're told, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. You see some of the same themes here from Hebrews. Shepherds, uh, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, not because you must, but because you're willing. It, it's, it's that same idea, uh, with joy and not with groaning. So imitate good leaders, follow good leaders, and then that leads straight to the third principle for leadership in this text. The third principle is we should therefore pray. Pray for good leaders. Imitate them, follow them, and pray for them. And that's verses 18 and 19. Let me read them. He says, pray for us, uh, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this, the praying, in order that I may be restored to you sooner. Uh, if you've uh, been here for even some of this series, you've, you've heard me say that we don't know who wrote Hebrews. Hebrews is... Uh, uh, we, we just don't know who wrote it. And there are different theories. Some people suggest it was Paul. Uh, some say a guy named Apollos from the New Testament. Some even suggest Barnabas. Another possibility is, it, is it's nobody we know. It's somebody else altogether. That's a possibility. Whoever it was, though, whoever wrote Hebrews does something, I think, very beautiful in verse 18. Because this author who has laid out all of these, these challenges and these warnings and all this rich, deep theology, here at the end of the book, he turns to his readers and he says, pray for us. Pray for us, he says. And the reason he wants their prayers is that he wants to get it right. Right? He said, look what he says. He says, we know we have a clear conscience. Right? So, so pray for us, for, here comes his reason, we're sure we have a clear conscience, we're sure we desire to act honorably in all things, and I think the unspoken part here is, I'm not going to be able to pull that off unless you pray for me. That's why he, pray, he asks for their prayers in verse 18. And then in verse 19, he says, please, right? I urge you all the more earnestly, he says, to do this, please, please pray for us so that we'll be able to lead you well. Right, and there's also this practical piece. He says, we also want to see you in person. But I think this is bigger than just kind of a prayer for his itinerary to free up so that he can come see them. Uh, he, he's, it's, it's, in, it's, it's situated in its context. He's asking them to pray for him as someone who is a leader in their lives. And I think the takeaway here, the leadership principle for the church here, is that we should pray for our leaders. We should absolutely pray for them. Whatever church you're part of, like I say, on a holiday weekend, we get visitors. Pray for the leaders of the church that you usually, you usually go to, please. And I'll say for those of you who are committed here, I know that many of you pray for me. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, and I would just invite you to, to, to double down on that and do it all the more. And not just for me, but for Paul and for our elders and for everyone who, who's um, charged with some form of leadership here in the church. Uh, we, we need your prayers, right? It's, it's too tall an order, and it's too important, right? I mean, if you look back at those first two things, it's too important. There's too much riding on it uh, for us to try to do it in our own power. So please, please, please uh, pray for us. 
So that's the first thing that the church needs to get right. If we're going to endure together, follow Jesus together, help one another, walk by faith together, you think in the language of chapter 11, uh, by the grace of God, we need to do leadership correctly in the church. The second thing, so category number two that I see in this text, uh, the second thing we need to get right is worship. We need to get worship right in the church if we're going to follow Jesus together. And that's the focus of verses 9 through 16. So we're going to zoom in on 9 through 16 now. And before I take us through those verses, I want to say two things about them. Uh, the first is that these verses are complicated. <laughs> these are the, I just, I just, they're, they're very, there's a lot of metaphor here, and, and he's pulling in a lot of the things that we've covered earlier in the letter, and he's assuming we paid attention when we, 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 we studied those things, especially chapters 7 through 10. So, so there is, this is a, 9 through 16 is a somewhat complicated section. Um, and so, again, you, if you leave with a burning, if you leave with questions today, that's probably going to happen. There's parts of this I can't uh, unpack every single word and every single detail in 9 through 16. Uh, if you have a burning question on something, I'd be happy to try to answer it afterwards. Come find me. Uh, but I'm just going to summarize this section at the principial level. The second thing I want to say about 9 through 16, since we're going to kind of be up here at the, at the principles level, is that when I'm, so I'm talking about worship, and I think worship is the theme that ties this whole long paragraph together. But when I say worship, we need to understand that we're not talking about the songs we sing. All right, so sometimes we'll use the word worship in a very narrow way, right? We just had worship for the first 15 minutes of the service. And that's fine. I'm, you know, I'm not going to be a word Nazi here and say you can't talk that way. I mean, that, that's fine. That is worship. But worship is also used scripturally in, the, in a big picture sort of a way to talk about our whole lives, a whole life of devotion and service to the Lord. That's also described as worship in the scriptures. And that's the sense in which we're talking about worship now, right? So we're talking about, so when you see up here, it says we need to get worship right. We're talking about the way we approach our entire life as an act of worship to the Lord, how we do that together. So with that in mind, here are four principles in verses 9 through 16 that we need to get right. Uh, the first principle is that we have to understand, both individually and together, that worship is about grace, not legalism. A life lived in devotion to Jesus is about grace, not legalism. And all four of these are lessons that have, we have, all of this should be review if you've heard most of these sermons, because these are all themes we've, we've covered along the way in Hebrews. Uh, verse 9 <clears throat> He says, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. So verse 9 starts with this warning, do not be led astray by false teaching, he says. But before we have time to scratch our heads and wonder which false teachings he means, he tells us. He, he zeroes in, he gives, I think, an example uh, he, he talks about Zoom, uh, food laws, right? He says food laws. Don't be led astray by, by strange teachings. And then he starts talking about food laws. Uh, why food laws? Well, a couple of reasons. You will remember uh, that the original audience of Hebrews is Jewish Christians. So it's Jew Hebrews, Jewish people, who had come to believe in Jesus in that first and second generation of the early church. So, so the primary audience, none of us are Jewish probably, or maybe we are, but, 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 but the primary audience was almost all Jews hearing it. The other thing is that if you've ever read the Gospels, you know that the enemies of Jesus were always getting on his case about foods. 
right? They were always trying to catch him and play gotcha over what foods they could eat and couldn't eat and when they could eat them and could you eat on the Sabbath and what could you eat on the Sabbath and all these kinds of details they, they had that they went after Jesus with. And you would really, if you want to see the legalism of the Jewish establishment by the first century, pay attention to the, the discussions about food in the four Gospels. Here's what I think the author's doing. The author's reminding now his readers, he's saying, don't go back to that. Because remember, we've said that was one of the temptations that first generation was experiencing. As persecution came and it's following Jesus got hard, some of the Jewish Christians were saying, well, maybe we should just go back to the Jewish part and drop the Christian part. And, and, and the author is saying here, don't do that. Don't go back to your Jewish legalism. It didn't help you. Instead, stand firm in the grace. Walk in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Your relationship with Jesus and therefore your salvation is not about rules. It's about grace about Jesus. So that's principle number one. It's grace, not legalism. The second principle is that a life of worship is spiritual, not ritual. Right? It's spiritual, not ritual. Uh, That's how I would summarize verses 10 and 11. Verse 10, uh, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals, all of these are things we've talked about back in chapters 7, 8, 9, 10. For the the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So I I think this is closely related to the first principle, grace, not legalism. Uh, The author uh, is in describing some of more what this legalism looks like. He brings in some of that old covenant stuff we looked at earlier in the letter. And so he talks about the altar. He talks about the tent. So you remember that whole thing with the tabernacle that we looked at? Uh, But he says, so, so he reminds us of the old covenant altar, the old covenant tent. That was the tabernacle in the wilderness that God told Moses to build. But he says, we have an altar and we have a tent that are different, right? So our altar is a spiritual altar. It's not a physical one. It's a spiritual altar. We serve in it. What's the altar? The altar is that heavenly one we talked about where Jesus offered up his life for us, you know, on the cross. And so we have a spiritual altar. It's not a physical one. We worship in a spiritual tent, right? Our, their tent, our tent isn't their tent. We have a spiritual tent. What's the spiritual tent? I would submit to you it's actually right, you see it right here. It's the body of Christ. I think that's, that's where, where the Holy Spirit inhabits now. He inhabits his people. And so we serve in the body of Christ. We don't serve in an earthly tent anymore. Uh, and so you've got this distinction between spiritual and physical. And then he talks about the animal sacrifices in verse 11. And he actually, in pretty compact way, highlights how ritualistic that was. And so the animals were killed, their blood was taken, the priest brought the blood inside of the, inside of the temple, uh, the carcass, you know, key pieces were burned on the altar, but in not a lot of the sacrifices, the rest of the carcass was taken outside, outside of the camp is the idea. And so you have all of this reminder of all the rituals of the old covenant, but the message, the reason he's reminding us of all this is he's saying, but that's not how we do it now. That's not how we do it now under the new covenant in Jesus Christ. Now our worship isn't ritual. Now our worship is is spiritual. Right? We don't need those rituals anymore because we have Jesus. And so it's, it's grace, not legalism. It's spiritual, not ritual. The third principle is that a life of worship is focused on the future, not the present. 
So it's future, not present. That's another distinction here. You get it in verses 12 through 14. He keeps building on the part about the camp. So verse 12, he says, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. So in verse 12, uh, the author makes a connection uh, between Jesus and the Old Covenant sacrifices. Well, you're just talking about the Old Covenant sacrifices uh, and and the animals and all that from verse 11. Uh, The carcass was taken outside of the camp, and that was so that it wouldn't defile the people. So the people would be purified by that sacrifice. They could now stay in the camp, and the carcass was taken outside the camp. It was actually taken outside the bounds of the camp. That... that, uh, what, that which represented sin was removed, was the idea. In verse 12, the author, basically what he reminds us of is that Jesus fulfilled it. Right? So Jesus fulfilled that part of the Old Covenant. And here's another part. He says Jesus was taken outside the gate. And what he's talking about is the crucifixion. When Jesus was crucified, he was crucified outside the city walls of Jerusalem. And that wasn't, the Romans did that for their kind of practical reasons, but it was also done, it also fulfilled that thing where the sacrifice was taken outside of the camp. So Jesus was sacrificed outside the city of Jerusalem. He reminds us of that. And so there's a fulfillment, there's a, there's a fulfillment thing going on there. But then look at the conclusion he draws. He doesn't really dwell on that. The conclusion he then draws is that we therefore should go outside to the camp, outside of the camp with him. That, that's what he says. And so under the old covenant, the animals were taken outside so the people could stay inside. But under the new covenant, we follow Jesus outside of the camp. We follow him outside, he says, and it's in verse 13, by embracing the same reproach and rejection that he endured. So he endured rejection and reproach. We follow him outside and, and embrace it ourselves, he says there in verse 13. <clears throat> What's he talking about? He's talking about persecution, which again is a big part of the context of this letter. Uh, Jesus suffered for us, verse 12, and now part of the Christian life, part of our life lived in devotion, part of a life of worship, is that when he calls us to do so, we suffer for him. That's verse 13. Um, how do we do that? You know, what's going to motivate us? What's going to keep us going? Again, this is review. Uh, the answer is in verse 14. Uh, we, we are ready to suffer for Jesus, to embrace persecution when it comes, and, and those kinds of sufferings, because we're not looking for the city that's here. Remember that language from chapter 11? Right? Abraham was looking for the city that is to come. Same thing for us. We're not looking for the city that's here, he says in verse 14. We're looking for the city to come. There's no lasting city for us here on planet Earth. We're looking for the heavenly city. Or, or to put it more, more plainly, if you're a follower of Jesus, you live in the present, but you don't live for the, ple- the present. Right? We can't live anywhere else. We live in the present. Uh, but we don't live for the present. That's the principle here when it comes to a life lived in devotion for Jesus Christ. Doesn't mean we check out of our present lives. It's, we talked about that. It's all lived here, right? This is where we obey. This is where we serve. This is where we love. Uh, it's done now, but it's not done for now, right? We're not, um, 
materialistic hedonists who just live for the moment, right? Eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow I'm not going to be here anymore. That's not our mentality. Our mentality is to live for the reward, to live for the heavenly city. And so that's the, the third uh, principle here for a life of worship to the Lord. Future, not present. The fourth one, the fourth principle uh, that he talks about here is that, and this kind of, I think, brings them all together, a life of worship involves both praise and good deeds. It is both praise and good deeds. Uh, You see this in verses 15 and 16. And so here's where you see how practical it is, right? It's not just a bunch of rituals. It's not killing some animals in a a ritualistic way. Uh, And even when we talk about spiritual, we're not talking about sitting in a corner and praying by yourself. We're talking about things that are, are very active, right? And you see this in verses 15 and 16. Through him then, let us continually offer, and there's a sense of therefore here, through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices, he repeats the idea of an offering, such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So he draws a conclusion there. Verses 15 and 16 draw a conclusion from all the stuff in verses 9 uh, 9 through uh, 14. And the conclusion is, therefore, we respond with offerings. Under the new covenant, we still bring offerings, right? They brought offerings under the old covenant. We bring offerings under the new covenant. Here's our offerings. There's two kinds. The first is a sacrifice of praise. Verse 15, we bring the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. It's verbal. Right? What we do when we, when we have the praise parts of our services uh, and, and on our own and as families. You know, we talk about family worship. So many different ways where we do this. Uh, that, that is worship. Right? That, that verbal praise. Whether we're singing, and it's not just singing. Maybe we're shouting or, 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 uh, or speaking or whispering or maybe you're into poetry and you write a poem. I mean, all, there's so many ways to verbally, with words, give praise to God. And he calls us to do that. He calls us to do that. So, so there's that sacrifice, the, the, the offering of praise, but then there's also the offering of good deeds, which he talks about in verse 16. Uh, do good and share what you have. Do good and share what you have. Why? Not because it'll earn you a salvation, not so that people think more of you, but because it's pleasing to God. That's the scriptural reason for doing good and sharing what you have. It's pleasing to God. It's an offering, it's worship that he, that he enjoys, and that he wants his people to offer. So we do both, right? It's a principle we need to get right as individuals and, and especially as a church. Uh, worship is both praise and good deeds. So that's the worship piece. We talked about leadership, we talked about worship. Uh, worship is a way of life, and this gives us some guidelines for how to do that. Uh, the last thing, the third big category I wanted to talk about this morning that we need to get right is lordship. The church needs to get lordship right if we're going to help each other press on in Jesus Christ. And lordship is the word I want to use to summarize verses 20 and 21. It's lordship. Before I read those two verses, though, uh, let me just say a quick word about verses 22 through 25. Uh, I'm a completionist at heart. It would, it would bother me to leave them unaddressed, so I, I just want to address these, these verses. Um, I think the formal ending of the letter is uh, 20 through 21, 
But, and then 22 through 25 is the author's greeting. So the author wrote it, but it's kind of, it's, it's the PS at the end, as it were. Um, the, his, his argument, the argument he's made ends at verse 20, 21. So just a couple of words about that, the final greeting your Bible might label it, 22 through 25. And the, the main thing I wanted to say about that section is just that I think it gives us a, a peek into the author's personality. And again, we don't know who the author is. Even from this, we can't quite conclude who it is, but it does let you see a little bit of an example of those good leaders we're supposed to be imitating, to go back to that first point. So, for example, he says a few things. Uh, for one, th- one thing I think you can deduce from those verses is that he's humble. He's humble. Why do I say he's humble? Well, because he asks them to bear with the letter. Even though he's just written them the most beautiful and sophisticated uh, treatise on what the old covenant means in the new covenant context, and he gets to the end of it and says, thanks for putting up with it. Right? And that takes humility. I really do. I think that takes humility to, to have that mindset. Um, this might be projecting on my part a little bit, but I also wonder if there isn't a little bit of a sense of humor here. And I say that because he says, I've written briefly. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> <laughs> it took us a year with a, with a break in the middle to get through Hebrews. That is not a brief letter. But, but he said, by his standards, he's, he's written briefly. A couple other things. Uh, he knows Timothy. So, and this is actually one of the, some people would use this as evidence that this was Paul who wrote the letter. Uh, this guy knows Timothy as well, and he tells, he gives us a little report on Timothy. It seems Timothy has been in prison, uh, but now he's been released, he tells us in verse 23. Uh, he sends some greetings, right? So very, very practical sort of thing. Uh, say hi to your people. My people say hi to you. Uh, and then just a blessing, a pretty standard blessing in, in a letter like this. Grace be with you. Grace be with you all, he says. So that's the practical stuff at the end. This is a real person who, who wrote this letter to us. I think that's helpful to remember that. Uh, before he closes, though, before he gets to the practical details, he does have this benediction, right? And benediction, word of blessing, benediction uh, in verses 20 and 21. But, you know, it, it functions not just as a word of blessing. I think it functions as a reminder. It's a reminder to us as readers of who it is we've been talking about for the last 13 chapters. And so it's like putting a spotlight on the Lord and saying, there he is. There he is. It made me think of um, one of the songs we sing these days. One of our our favorite songs as a church these days is that song, Behold Our God, that we sing sometimes. And and I thought of that song as I was looking at verses 20 and 21, because it seems to me that's what the author does here at the end. He says, look, look, there he is. This is the God I've been telling you about. This is this Lord that that I'm, 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 I'm urging you to press on and follow. Behold your God, he says here in verses 20, 21. Let me read it to you. Uh, he says, uh, now, and you've, these words are somewhat familiar because we've used them as closing benedictions several times this year. I know our worship leaders have done that. Verse 20, now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, may he equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Who is he? Who is this Lord? Who is this Lord we serve? Well, for one thing, he is the God of peace. I got five here. He's the God of peace. Are you anxious? 
Are you struggling? Are you, does your stomach get a little tight every time somebody starts talking about the news or asks you what you're going to do with your life or whatever it is? Here's our answer to that. He's the God of peace. Look to your Lord. Look to the God of peace. Who else is he? He's also the resurrector of the dead. He's the resurrector of the dead. This God of peace that we worship, just follow through the, the two verses. The next thing he says is that he brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. It's the doctrine of the resurrection. He brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, which means death is not the end of the story. That's why 1 Corinthians says Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. He's the first we will follow. Death is not the end of the story. No, it's just the beginning for those who are in Christ. That's a good thing to remember this time of year, right? Whenever we think back, and I know the holidays can stir it up even more, when we think about those people we've lost, those people that we're missing, uh, that is not the end of their story. It's not the end of the story. Our God is, he's the God of peace and he's the resurrector of the dead. He's also the shepherd of the sheep. He's the shepherd, the great shepherd of the sheep. Uh, this one focuses specifically on Jesus, right? A lot of the good benedictions will bring in two or sometimes all three members of the Trinity. Uh, here the author shifts from God the Father to God the Son. Uh, our Lord Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep. Uh, in case there's any doubt with the metaphor, there probably isn't, but he's the shepherd, we're the sheep, right? That's the idea. Uh, you know, Psalm, Psalm 23 or Psalm 100, we, we, we are the sheep of his pasture. So we're the sheep. And, and, and so the point is, what's the point of that, that biblical metaphor? We could talk for a long time about that one. Uh, but the point is, is most simply, he takes care of us. Because that's what the shepherd does for the sheep. He takes care of the sheep. And so our God, who is this Lord we worship? He, he takes care of us. He provides for us. He guides us. You know, go meditate on Psalm 23. He guides us. He restores us. He comforts us. He corrects us. He redirects us. He, he makes sure we're on the right path and not the wrong path. All these things he does for us because he's the great shepherd of our souls. He does that for you as an individual, and he does it for us as a church. That's who he is. That's who our Lord is. Uh, two more, our Lord is also the savior of sinners. He's the Savior of sinners. You see that in the last part of verse 20. God brought back Jesus from the dead. How? By the blood of the eternal covenant. It's by the blood, not of the temporary old covenant, but the, the eternal covenant, the new covenant. What's the blood of the new covenant? It's the cross. So he's talking about the cross with just a few words. He catches a whole bunch of doctrine here. It's the cross. That's what changes everything. Jesus gave himself for us on the cross. And because he did, he's our savior. He's the savior of sinners. Without him, we're just lost sinners. But with him, we're, we're redeemed. And so we are forgiven. The stain is washed away. Our guilt is removed. The shame is expunged. All of it. All of it. Because our Lord, our Lord is the savior of sinners. And then finally, he's also the equipper of the saints. He's the equipper of saints. And that's verse 21. That's the, kind of the last section of the benediction there. He equips us with everything good so that we may do his will. He equips us so we can do his, his will. That's really good news. This book is very challenging. 
Right? This book has challenged us in a lot of ways along the way here. Right? There's, there's warnings, there's commands. Uh, some commands, some of the commands are easy, but some of them are very difficult. Uh, there's a lot of exhortations, a lot of challenging stuff in the book of Hebrews. Uh, and sometimes, I don't know about you, but sometimes it's felt a little overwhelming. But now we hear at the end, the author reminds us one more time that we do not have to do any of this stuff we've talked about on our own. We don't do it on our own. Our own power to follow Jesus, remember, that was the old covenant. Our own power to follow Jesus is utterly, utterly insufficient. Completely insufficient. But our ability to follow Jesus does not depend on our own power, thanks be to God. It depends on his power, which is working in us. That's that middle part of verse 21. He is working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. He equips us with everything good so that we can do his will. That's who our Lord is. The result of all that, putting a, putting a bow on all of it here, the, the result of all of it is glory. The result is glory. Glory for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the very last part of verse 20 thing, 21. Everything we have comes to us, quote, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. To him be the glory. And that's how the book ends. Like I say, there's the postscript with the details, but the argument of the book ends with this declaration of glory to Jesus Christ, which is actually, if you remember, you probably don't, I barely did myself, but it's actually how the book started too. So he begins and he ends with glory, glory for our Lord Jesus. Hebrews chapter one, verse three was the first sermon back in January last year, this year. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Talking about Jesus, he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Glory, all of it's to his glory, to, his, to, to Jesus be glory forever and ever. Amen. Behold your God indeed.